This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Uh, This morning, our teaching text is from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And if you're following along in your blue Bible, it's found on page 808. If you're able, would you please stand? Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watching with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pastor John, uh, it's a privilege to serve here as lead pastor. Would you join me in prayer before we go further? Father, we love you. I thank you, God, for your spirit. I thank you, God, for the witness of your spirit, for, for the gifts of your spirit as we sung about this morning. And I thank you, Father, for the way in which your spirit guides us, instructs us, convicts us. And Father, as we Look at your word today here in Matthew 26, and we look at this moment in history where our Savior is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and something very powerful is happening. Father, we pray that we would get a glimpse of that and that we would feel the weight of this text in this particular moment. God, let it be raw on our hearts this morning. We love you. We thank you, we worship you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Our text here in Matthew 26 picks up um, just following the Passover meal. Um, This particular Passover meal was infamously deemed the, the Last Supper. And so Jesus takes three of his disciples 
Peter, John, and James, and he heads to a place of familiarity. Uh, I believe it's the gospel writer John shares that this was a place that he and his disciples often went. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And he shares with them in verse 38 as he gets there that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This place, the Garden of Gethsemane, was located on a slope on the Mount of Olives just across from the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem. It was a place where Jesus may have met with the Father many, many, many times. It was a familiar place for not only himself, but for his disciples as well. And this is such a significant event that all four gospel writers included in their accounts on this Thursday night prior to his crucifixion. We have hints from Mark's account that he was certainly here, and from Matthew's account, that he was certainly here for you could assume over an hour, over 60 minutes, because the first time in which he comes to his disciples and they're sleeping, he says what? He says, couldn't you stay up with me for for one hour and and pray? I wanna bring to your attention the overwhelming state that we find our Savior in, in this moment. It's important to note that Jesus is not approaching his death with a sheer chin up, chest out type of boldness that so many of his martyrs who believed and trusted in him all the way to their death and to their martyrdom seem to have, as we know in church history, he doesn't seem to possess this. This depiction shows Jesus trembling going back and forth between prayer and the disciples, prayer and the disciples, and he seems concerned. One could even suggest that Jesus in this moment seems weak. At one point, Matthew depicts here, he's falling with his face to the ground, with his face to the ground. This is the same Jesus who shows remarkable courage in the face of danger. This is the same Jesus who unflinchingly calls out demons and they flee, calls out religious leaders and they walk away with their tails between their legs. He walks on water, he calms a storm. He calls out sin unapologetically and he calls forth the dead to rise. This Jesus in the garden is trembling. I want you to understand that this morning because something significant is happening at this moment and there's a cosmic shift that is taking place. What's happening? Verse 37 says that as he began to pray, he began to feel sorrowful and troubled. The word began there is is a key word that can easily go overread or overlooked, and it seems to signify that something different began to happen from this moment in time onward to the cross. Something different happened. 
something astonishing, something terrible in a sense, but glorious in another sense. The word translated as sorrowful is a very strong word in the Greek, and it only picks up strength when it's coupled with the word troubled. So it's not only he was sorrowful, but he was sorrowful and troubled. It means to be thrown into sorrow. What would throw you into sorrow? What would seem to throw you into such a deep, deep sorrow? For Jesus, it was so deep, the text says that he almost died from it. Verse 38 said, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. It's so horrific that Jesus literally almost dies from the magnitude of it. And it's important to note that Jesus was not one prone to exaggeration like you and I can be. Luke says that Jesus literally began to strain so hard from the anguish of the moment in prayer that he was sweating great droplets of blood. It's a condition that we now know as hematridosis, where you are under such anguish and distress that your capillaries burst. And in this case, they burst in his face. I was hearing a, a story the other week of a family who, who left the pool one summer day and they left to go back to their car and as they got to their car, they realized, they realized that their five-year-old son was not with them. And so the father hustled back to the pool and he ends up seeing what we all can imagine seeing a five-year-old boy, his five-year-old boy at the bottom of the pool. And so he dives in, gets this boy out, puts him on dry land, and he shouts for someone to call 911. And while he does that, he begins resuscitating his son. And as the ambulance comes in, the boy is actually now breathing, taken and rushed to the ER. And by God's grace, he was alive and doing okay, but the doctor at the hospital says, hey, we're gonna wanna keep him for a day. We're gonna wanna keep him for a day, just continue to run tests to make sure everything is okay. The little boy starts drifting off to sleep, and the father looks at the boy a little closer, his son, and he notices these purple blotches on his face. And so the father calls the doctor back in, and he says, hey, just a quick question what are these purple blotches from? And the doctor said, the best I can tell you is that when your son was going under the water, he was quite possibly screaming for what I would guess to be his dad so powerfully that the capillaries in his face burst. He was screaming for his father, even possibly at the bottom of the pool. Jesus is feeling that type of strain here as he is calling out for his father. 
And he's feeling so much more than even that. What is Jesus experiencing? This should be a question on our hearts as we read this text. What is Jesus experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane? In verse 39, as he's calling out to God his Father, as he had so many other times in his earthly life, he, he gets no response. He refers to God as Abba, a term that signifies the closest of intimacy. But for the first time in all of eternity, the Father is silent to the Son. He's silent. Jesus had been at this particular place, as I mentioned before, so many times to draw on strength and intimacy with the Father. And he's going here this particular night to find the same comfort, to find the same strength, to find the same Father who he knows and who knows him. And he's looking for him, but he gets no such comfort. He just gets silence. And so what does Jesus do? Well, Matthew gives us an account. He stumbles back to his disciples looking for what seems to be some type of comfort in connection with them, and he finds nothing there as well. They're, in the, they're approaching possibly their REM sleep cycle. They're asleep as the most significant moment of history is unfolding right before their very eyes. Asleep when heaven and hell are in the balance. They're asleep. What a scary and revealing picture of us sometimes. Asleep when heaven and hell are in the balance. You may be here this morning and you may be asleep, spiritually speaking, while heaven and hell are in the balance. Unconcerned with the issue of sin, not only on a cosmic level, but unconcerned with the issue of sin on a personal level, your sin. In every sense of the word in this moment, Jesus faced abandonment. Jesus faced abandonment. Swiss theologian Francis Turrentin shared what Jesus' abandonment meant for him. He shared, Christ not only suffered a violent and bitter death, but was forsaken by God the Father by his withdrawing from him the beatific or blissful vision and by suspending the joy and comfort and sense in fruition of full felicity. That is to say, from here to the cross, something drastically changed for Christ there was a cosmic shift, spiritually speaking. None of us can fully understand what he endured out of his love for us. British songwriter and Christian worship leader Stuart Townend puts it this way in the amazing hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The first verse says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away 
as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Jesus faces this searing loss. The father turning his face away. Question, have you ever felt alone and abandoned? Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend, a family member, or a spouse, and you went through a really dark period as a result, and you feel the weight of abandonment. Jesus felt that, and he felt it so much more. So unexplainable what he felt in this moment at the Garden of Gethsemane. He felt indescribable rejection. And this is why, guys, like, uh, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a communicator, I'm, I'm in my office and I'm working on this and I'm at home and I'm working on this and I'm like, ooh, oftentimes as a communicator, I'm thinking, what kind of analogies, what kind of stories, what can I share to wake the people up to really understand this? And I realized every story I tried to insert into this to bring it more alive, it only did it in injustice. Because the weight of this moment is so great, any human analogy perils in comparison to it. So I got nothing flashy for you. Just a struggling savior on his face, crying out to the Father with no relief. Just silence. While his closest friends and followers are sleeping a stone's throw away. One person said, this is the horror of one who lived completely for the father who came to be with his father for a brief interlude before his death and he found hell rather than heaven open up before him. You can't imagine this. You cannot believe the utter weight that he faced at the garden of Gethsemane. Hear me out. Believer, he took your hell. He took your hell. He took the abandonment from the Father that you and I should experience due to our open rebellion against God. An abandonment so great that the affront against the God in whom you and I have offended is so great that the penalty is abandonment from God forever. Which I don't know if there's a better way to describe hell. It is abandonment from God forever. He took that. He took that weight. He faced that abandonment. And in this moment, it almost killed him. Before a nine-inch nail ever pierced his hand, before a crown of thorns ever crushed his skull, before they put on a bag over his head in a game called Hot Hand, hit him, laughed, joked around, beat him, and said, 
Savior, King of the Jews, prophesy who is hitting you. Before any of that ever took place, he met with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, found no comfort, found the Father turning his face away to the Son for the first time in all of eternity. He felt utter abandonment. And when he's looking for some sort of comfort from his closest followers, what does he find? Sleep. Three dudes sleeping. We get a glimpse of at least some of what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, and our sister Rachel read it. I want to look at it again, verse 39 in Matthew 26. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not not as I will, but as you will. And then just three verses later, verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus took on your wrath. Jesus took on the wrath of God that was destined for you and I due to our sin. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? I heard a story, I think it was about 10 years ago, of a Sunday school teacher reading this same text And she was teaching seven and eight-year-olds. And she read the text and she simply asked the question, students, what is the cup that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 26? And one little girl in a dress raised her hand. She called on her. The little girl stood up and with confidence boldly said, ma'am, the wrath of God was in the cup. The wrath of God was in the cup. That seven-year-old was correct, and Jesus took every drop of it. He took every drop of it. A cup is often the symbol of divine wrath against sin in the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, Lamentations 4, Ezekiel 23, Habakkuk 2. Jonathan Edwards described the wrath of God like a dam breaking. Charles Spurgeon compared it to a gnat being run over by a freight train. If you would have been there in the moment with Jesus and you would have tried to stop him, he would have said, no, this cup is your cup and there is no other way. I must take it. This is why only Jesus Christ, God incarnate, could accomplish salvation for us. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us. And he demonstrated it perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. In Luke's account, it says that an angel came to strengthen him. 
What did the angel do to strengthen him? We don't know, but I do know this. It must have been necessary. We know that all that Jesus was experiencing was so weighty that it almost killed him. Before a whip ever hit his back, a nail ever entered his palms, a cross, before all of that, Jesus here is experiencing the the weight of the wrath of God. And from this point on, the author of Hebrews says that when Jesus got up, when he was arrested, when he was approaching the cross, all the way to the cross, the author of Hebrews gives us this amazing glimpse of the heart of Christ. It says he did all of this with joy because of something that had been set before him. Hebrews 12, two says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus see that he was going to obtain that made the cross worth it? What did Jesus not have on that side of the cross that he now possesses on this side of the cross? What could cause him so much joy in a moment where just the sheer opening up of the wrath of God towards the Son and the turning of the Father's face away towards the Son was so great it almost killed him before anything physically happened to him by Roman soldiers? What did he seek to gain? There's only one thing. You. You. Better yet, us. I'm going to talk about pronouns. Let's talk about changing the yous to us's more. Because that's the, oftentimes the pronouns that are used in the word of God. Here's what it says in 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There was no other way. There was no other way. This was the way in which God had set out to save humanity. And there was no other way. And hear me out, this is why the idea that there are multiple ways to salvation is so disgusting. It comes off as this compassionate and open-minded worldview, but in the end it says that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't completely necessary. Although it sounds like the loving thing to do, just slap a coexist bumper sticker on your van, 
do some good stuff, choose from the buffet of deities and simply live your life the best you can. There may be no greater insult, friends, to the savior of the universe than that right there. That he's just one of many options. Jesus looked at God his father and said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass before me. And Jesus' movement toward the cross reveals to us clearly that there was and still is no other way to forgiveness, no other way to the Father. For he is the Lamb of God who was slain before the creation of the world. John the Baptist declares in John chapter one, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we try to pretty it up. We try to be culturally acceptable because it's the trendy thing to do. Lighten the blow a little bit and declare that Jesus is not the way, Jesus is just a way of many, of several. Do me a favor, you must know this. Stop trying to be more loving than Jesus. He is the only way. You and I are not more loving than him. No matter what the culture says, he is the only way to the Father. We can stop arguing and simply stand and be amazed at all he has done and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. This is not the time to start running towards vain philosophies and speculate how you would have chosen to save the world. You're not God and thank God for it. And I'm not him either. But it's time for us to humbly receive what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. And when the church does this, unapologetically, yes, loving towards those people and individuals who may have a worldview quite different than yours, maybe it's the coexist worldview. Yes, we approach them lovingly. But as believers, we don't submit to that. We believe in the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world, as it says in Revelation. The gospel is good news. And it shows the incredible love that Jesus has for you. And it also shows the terrible judgment that awaits all those who reject him. That's the weight of this moment, the garden of Gethsemane. If you would keep reading, and I wanted to kind of start landing the plane, but if you were to keep reading, you would see as Jesus leaves the garden, almost immediately he's confronted. And there's Judas, comes up, he gives him a kiss. And here are the centurions, the officials coming to take Jesus and arrest him. And what happens? 
Many of you know, Peter, the bold brother that he is, takes his sword out and slashes at one of their ears. And Jesus rebukes him, picks up the ear, and heals the man as he had healed so many before. And a lot of us, as we shared about Judas last week, we look at Peter and say, no, I want to be more like Peter and less like Judas. But the reality is, um, Peter was absolutely wrong as well. And he struggled with the same disease, you could say, the sin disease that Judas struggled with. But it just looked a little different. Peter was going to take matters into his own hands at any cost to protect Jesus. And the reality is, oftentimes with our sin, we tend to do the same thing or something really similar to it where we kind of say we could just take matters into our own hands and help Jesus out a little bit because he needs our help. You know, meet him halfway. And that is an absolute lie and it takes away from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't help him out. I can't help him out. He died completely for you. He carried the entire weight. He took on the entire wrath of God for you so that you could be redeemed, so that you could live freely in him. Now the question is, will you surrender your life to him? Will you fully surrender your life to him? The savior who interceded for you and is still interceding for you today, right now, is here. Perhaps like the image on the back wall there of our stained glass, knocking at the door. Will you fully submit to him today? Second Peter 3, 8, 9 says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the Lord's heart for you right now. You may be here today and you are so far from Jesus. Even though you're close to his church, you're in his church, but you may be so far from Jesus. His word to you today is that he's been patient with you all along. And he's not slow in keeping his promise. 
He longs to see you come into a relationship with him. And he set the table. He's prepared the way. He's did the heavy lifting. Perhaps you haven't experienced the fullness of what God longs to give you in Christ. You haven't surrendered all of yourself to him. Maybe today, salvation has come to you. And you have a longing to come to him. And his name is Jesus. I plead with you, come to him. Doesn't matter how long you've been in church, doesn't matter how long you've been a so-called Christian, perhaps this whole time, you, you just, just haven't come to him and turned from your sin and turned to him in full surrender. Maybe today is that day for you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the weightiness of this text, and I do not want to extract from it. I do not want to distract from it. I do not want to move away from it. I want it to just sit. All that you accomplished for us. I, I want to just, just say thank you. But God, as I'm, I'm here with a large group of people, I also understand that they might not know you. That this may be one of the first moments or the first moment in their life where the weight of their sin is present on their heart and your spirit has been doing a work over the last 35 minutes or so. I pray, Father, if that is someone here, that they would just come forth, that they would come to you, and they would come to you broken and that you would restore them and give them hope and give them joy and bring to them restoration. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your kindness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What we want to do is we're going to sing a closing song here. Is listen, if that's you here today, and you would like to pray to receive Christ. Come forward. It doesn't matter how awkward it might feel. It doesn't matter what you think the person next to you might think, and maybe it's your spouse. You haven't cared what they thought for a long time anyway. Um, you just, just come forward. Um, we'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. Stephen here um, would love to, to pray with you as well. We'd love to just talk with you. If that's you during this last song, we just ask that you come forward, and, and we'd love to meet with you. Thank you. Tom.